Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This, with the recommendation for another podcast for you to check out, namely How I Built This. Every week, I talk to the people behind some of the most inspiring companies and brands in the world with stories of incredible persistence, grit, and insight. You can find How I Built This on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I talked with Terry Crews this week. He's Andy Samberg's co-star on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He played the president in Idiocracy. He was also the screaming muscle man in all those Old Spice ads. Before all that, Terry was a football player, not just like high school, college football. He played in the NFL for five years. Of course, that kind of thing can't go on forever. He retired in 1996, and it's always a weird transition. One day, you're getting VIP parking next to the Eagles Training Center. The next, you're rolling up to the L.A. Fitness by the Target. That's how it went for Terry Crews. I went to a gym, and I was like, I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, all right, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, I've never paid to work out ever. <laughs> they were like, well, welcome to the real world, Mr. Cruz. It's $25 a month. And I was like, oh, damn. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Terry about his life in and out of the NFL. And he'll also tell me that even though he's working pretty much all the time, he's still careful when it comes to deciding what he'll do. A lot of people say, oh, Terry Crews does it all. No, you should see what I turned down. There was tons of stuff I turned down. There's ways to tell all kinds of stories, ways to do everything without it being exploitative. As soon as people stop being human, you have a problem. And my job as an actor and as a performer is to project humanity and to show you sides of humanity. Then, in 1969, the band King Crimson released its debut album. It was called The Court of the Crimson King. And the music was as grand as the title. We'll find out about how they laid the foundation for prog rock. Then I'll talk with Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham. They co-created the USA show Playing House. When they came up with the idea, they knew that other shows about female friendships felt like they were missing something. I think we just wanted to show, like, uh, that women just don't really have it together. (laughs) We watched Sex and the City, and we definitely connected to the emotional stuff and the friendship part. But the part where you're wearing a tutu and, like, you know, that that fantasy. The Manolas all over town. Yeah, you're not going to find that in Playing House. No, no. (laughs) Finally. I'll tell you about Gap Band 4, the album by the Gap Band, wall-to-wall bangers. I swear, great record. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Terry Crews. Growing up in Flint, Michigan, he was a linebacker. He ended up getting picked by the Los Angeles Rams in the 11th round of the 1991 NFL Draft. Five years later, he played his last season of pro football with the Eagles. Then he took up acting 
He starred alongside Ice Cube in The Friday After Next, played Chris Rock's dad on Everybody Hates Chris. Now he plays Sergeant Jeffords on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Lately, he's been in the news speaking out against sexual harassment of all kinds, including some he says he suffered himself. When I talked to him last year, he just appeared in Sandy Wexler, the Adam Sandler comedy on Netflix. In it, he plays a professional wrestler named Bedtime Bobby Barnes. He's a client of Sandy Wexler, who's a manager played by Sandler. And in this scene, he's signing autographs at a wrestling convention when Sandy stops by for a visit. You're the man, Bedtime. Isn't he? Oh, I know you're going to take the title on Sunday. I'm going to make him go night-night. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to lose. You don't know that. Hang on, please. Yeah, I do know that. I got the script. Tsunami sits on my face until I tap out. I'm never going to be the champ. Okay, look. The good thing is you're going to have a grown man sit on your face and the entire world is going to be watching. That's a positive. That's not a positive. It's a positive. <laughs> Terry Crews, welcome back to Bulls. I thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's really nice to see you again. I, um, I, I, for, I don't, I've never met Adam Sandler, but everyone I know who knows Adam Sandler really likes him. As an enormous Pacific Islander guy's butt approached your face, <laughs> did you did you consider whether there was a length to which you would not go on behalf of Adam Sandler? Uh, you know, I I have no problem going all the way in. If he <laughs> if he if he had to do it, I, I would have endured it and done it because you know it's. I have to say, acting is a little bit like travel. You know. When you're on, when you're in another country, you do things that you wouldn't do at home. You know, there, there are things that you go, oh yeah, I'll, I'll eat that bug if I'm in Africa and I'm walking around. Hey, yeah, they, they're like, this is the native food. This is what you do. Now at home, you would be like, that's unthinkable. With movies, you're not you. So for me, it's kind of an escape. I mean, I've done a lot of things that I would normally not do, but. I feel like one of the marks of your work is the extent to which you will commit to something. I, you know, I don't have any other speed. I just, I'm either all in or I'm asleep. And it's something I, I, I kind of learned in the NFL because it's the way to deal with fear. It's the way to deal with any apprehension. It's kind of like I don't like to dip my toe in because then I just won't go. Uh, it's either dive in. I remember, you know, when you when you're a special team player and you know you got to run 60 yards full speed into the biggest men you've ever seen, a wall of manhood, and you have to slam your head into that. If you break down, you're just gonna run into the locker room. Like there's there's no you have to just go. And my big ability, even in the NFL, was just taking tremendous amounts of pain. So. When I looked at acting, it was a way of defeating any sort of apprehension. It's a way of just go so far in that you you get lost. It's and I kind of find that's the trick with everything for me is to really you know there are times when I'm like okay I'm gonna clean this kitchen oh my god this kitchen is awesome it's, it's horrible it's terrible it's all these dishes everywhere and but all of a sudden once I focus and just go in like really say, okay, how clean can I make this kitchen? I mean, my wife is like, you're you're a bit obsessive compulsive about everything like that, but I don't have any other way. Because um, if I was going to halfway do it, I would just feel like I'm going to quit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's always like all in or nothing. 
When you were in college, were you thinking about yourself as a career football player, as somebody who was going to become an NFL player? Not, not at all. I mean, well, no, I knew I was going to play in the NFL, but football was not an end for me. It was always a means. Like, I had other plans. Even while I was playing in the NFL, I shot a movie, and it was terrible, and we were kicked out of locations, and it was, it, it was a wild experience, but I loved every second. When you were here last, we talked a little bit about when you were playing in the NFL. And one of the things that you said to me was that you felt like with the possible exception of some quarterbacks, every player in the NFL was in some way broken. Yes. Like emotionally broken. Oh, yeah. And I wonder if you can play and succeed in the NFL without it being your entire world. I mean, it's such such an insane thing. An amazing thing, too. Yeah, right. But an insane thing. Like, can you have one foot out of it while you're doing it? Well, see, I, this is my—once I got out and looked back in hindsight, this is why I wasn't a major star, because it wasn't the end for me. And I was good enough, but I wasn't really willing to do everything it took to be at the top. I mean, I just— that I didn't care enough. Like, there, you know what I mean? You really have, like, now, let me tell you something. The reason why I'm a successful actor right now is because I care. Like, I'm willing to go there. Well, I have a question you for know? you. Go I, ahead. Everybody who plays professional sports, or I should say 90% of the people who play professional sports have to deal with something that is so bonkers to me. When you are, uh, when you become a professional athlete, you have dedicated a huge chunk of your life to this sport, all the way into your early twenties and into your adulthood. Yeah. And when you enter the NBA or the NFL or minor league baseball, you realize that everybody else is better than you. Yes, yes. And I wonder what that was like for you, because you know, to get drafted into the NFL, you have to be a star in college. Right. But you were drafted in the 11th round, is I was that right? in the 11th round. Now, see, it was different for me. I, I had a different experience where, you know, I, I wasn't expected to make it. It was, your, when is he going to get cut kind of question. And I stayed around. And I remember seeing guys from SC and Notre Dame, and they would get their hearts broken because someone would tell them, you're not as good as you think you are. Where... Everything for me was a bonus. You got to understand, like, my whole life is a, I'm in bonus points, like, right now. Like, Flint, Michigan, coming from Flint, it's most of my friends are living lives that are way less than what they thought they would be living. Or there, there are a lot of people who I knew were, were in jail and a lot of people who are dead. And the expectations are very, very low. So when here I am, you know, household name, people, you know, it's worldwide, go everywhere in the world, people know who I am. And, it's, and my thing is, it's always been, wow, look at where I am right now. So what was it like for you, Terry, when you were, you know, I, you had always had music and art were huge parts of your lives, huge parts of your life from when you were a kid. But driving yourself hard enough to be an NFL player and to be, um, marginal NFL player, you know, to be the kind of guy who could get cut, who mm-hmm. always has to be looking over his shoulder because he might get cut. When it ended up happening, when it's when it became permanent, and you realized you weren't going to play in the NFL again, 
what was it like to you to lose all of that stuff that you had been driving towards and all that stuff that, you know, to some extent you had bought into in order yeah. to get to do that? What was your life like? Major depression. You know, even on the bottom of the roster, you, you have some glory. You know, you can go places. And you can go somewhere and say, I, I'm an NFL football player. Yeah, and everybody was, oh, 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 and they look at you and respect you. Terry, and you're you... the only NFL football player I've ever met. You, you know what I mean? And it's so exciting. It's, it's like, hey, you know. And But then I couldn't say that anymore. What, I'm, I'm going to give you one of the biggest examples. was crazy. I went to a gym, and I was like, I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, all right, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to work out here. And they were like, okay, that'll be $25 a month. And I was like, I've never paid to work out ever. <laughs> they were like, well, welcome to the real world, Mr. Cruz. It's $25 a month. And I was like, oh, damn. And it hit me like solid. And you are no longer that. And I remember just being totally depressed, totally down in the dumps because you, you don't have that anymore. And you don't know if you're ever going to get anything that fulfills that space. Well, because it's such a – I mean, I've never done anything in my entire life that's nearly as difficult as one week of playing in the NFL. And I've never taken – I've never done anything that asks that much of me. Right, right. And when nothing is asking that much of you and you're the kind of guy that you are, I mean, you're that kind of guy that throws so much into everything – not to have something to throw it into must have been a big deal. Well, I thought I was I actually was telling my wife I want to be, I want to get into boxing. And she was like, "Okay, you know, you survived one thing." And I just remember getting overweight, watching a lot of TV, eating a lot of snacks at night because it was emotional, very very emotional. And one day, you know, my wife pinched my back fat. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? She's like, it's cute. I'm just like, what? I, and I, I'm, lo I'm losing it. I'm losing it. Because in your mind, you think you're the same guy, but you're slowly losing control of your life. And I remember just hearing a, 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 a tape where it said, in tw if you do something straight for 21 days, you will gain the habit. And so I decided to go to the gym for 21 days and, and stop eating late at night for 21 days. And that turned into 18 years. And I never stopped. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is Terry Crews. How comfortable are you with getting older? I'm very comfortable with it. You're in your late 40s now. I'm, I'll be 49 this year. At some point, your hormones start to change, and you probably will be less of, at the very least, less of a muscle man. <laughs> and I can say, you're sitting across from me. At the moment, you are definitely a muscle man. <laughs> 100% muscle man over there. It's more important to me that I be in shape mentally. It just is. Now, I've never stopped being an athlete because it's fun. And for one, I get I get renewed energy from the workouts. Like, for me, my workouts are more spiritual than they are physical because it gets me in the right tone for the day. I have so much energy. I have to tell you. I have to burn off two hours, and then I can start a regular day. To me, and another thing is, is I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not a guy who's like, okay, I'm gonna get these arms right. I'm more so. I have to get my body ready for my job, for what I do. And this is as, as a performer. I realize to be really, really successful, 
I had to get my endurance up to where I could do three jobs at the same time. Do you have to or have you had to adjust that impulse to acknowledge the fact that you've got a big family and that, you know, working provides for that family financially, but it doesn't provide for that family in other ways? Well, yeah, but I but again, I approach my family as if it was another gig, you know, what I mean, because you have to include all of that into the into the mix, because if you leave that. You're really going to be messed up. And I did that before where it was family was just an okay thing. And, you know, they're going to get with it and while I chase my dream. When was that? This was, oh, my God. This was pretty much from football right into the early days of entertainment, you know. And this is when my marriage pretty much broke up because I was not paying attention to my, to me, to to how I was treating my family, to my wife, to my kids. In fact, in fact I, I say this all the time, but I was a, a guy who felt like he was more valuable than his wife and kids. I was totally like, look, in my house, it was the trickle down theory. But the thing is, n- nothing really ever trickled down. I, it was just more of me. And my wife was like, I've had it. That's enough. I'm done. And all of a sudden, it hit me that it was like, yo, man, maybe it's me. Because I could easily blame her and say, oh, you just don't understand me. You don't understand men. You don't understand what it is. But I said, you know, maybe it is me. And I had that, that's when I had to stop the career and focus on the family. It seems like this is a continuing process for you. I mean, a, a year or so ago, you talked a lot publicly about being addicted to pornography, going into rehab. Um, that's something that obviously can affect your family. Oh, yeah, big time. And, and it was kind of a thing where, you know, you got to look at cause and effect. You know what I mean? And uh, a lot of times we, we're, we're dealing only with effects. But I realized that, you know, pornography wasn't the problem. It was the effect of a deeper issue. You know what I mean? And it was like, hey, man, when you believe as a man that you are more valuable than than women it doesn't it, it affects the way you think about you just look at things as they're just property i remember being in the nfl and they would you know we would all go to strip club and all this whole thing but if a stripper ever started talking about her kids or her life i got bills it's like oh man babe, babe, you, shh, please quiet you know <laughs> because you know what cuz she's starting to become a real person you don't want a human being you want something that you can manipulate and you can control. And that's what pornography was. For me, it fulfilled that. Like, okay, yeah, you know, I can do that and whatever. But all of a sudden, I could see how people had less value to me. It was affecting the way I saw everyone. And I said, this is a problem. Believe you me, I've been in intense therapy, going through it, and still, still, constantly, constantly, Figuring out, opening up what makes me tick. When I read about your pornography addiction, the thing that I wondered about was so much of your work is about your body. Like, you are by far the world's preeminent comic nipple dancer. (laughs) Pick popping is now family entertainment. Yeah. (laughs) 
And all of those things take immense talent and skill, which you have. I mean, there's a lot of guys with muscles who aren't on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, one of the funniest shows on TV. But your work is it remains essentially in part about your body. And I wonder how you dealt with those feelings of like, on the one hand, I am trying to deal with engaging with people as people and not as objects. Mm-hmm. And realizing that part of your work was as an object in part. Well, this is what I, that's a good question too, because I had to ask myself that. But what, so what, what I think is the, is the breakthrough and it's really, really wild. It's like kind of like that stripper analogy I told you about. Nudity is not pornography, but pornography is when you take the humanity out of something. Now, the good thing is, me being Terry Crews and being being characters, it's that I always get to display my humanity. You know what I mean? I mean yeah, I'm peck popping and the whole thing, but you know that I'm a human being. And you know that I'm emotional, I have feelings, I'm a person. And that's kind of how I tested a lot of different roles that came to me. There were different things where... After I did the movie White Chicks, there were plenty of movies that came to me. They were like, oh, man, we want to have you in this, and you're in the bed with this with this girl. And, 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 and I was like, no, no, no. Because you can see some guy over there going, I don't want to see that. And you're like, dude, that's that's I'm an object there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I turned down plenty, plenty of roles. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, Terry Crews does it all. No, you should see what I turned down. There was tons of stuff I turned down. There's ways to tell all kind of stories, ways to do everything without it being exploitative. As soon as people stop being human, you have a problem. And my job as an actor and and as a performer is to project humanity and to show you sides of humanity. We've got more of my interview with Terry Crews. We'll be back in just a minute. Coming up, we talk about how childhood trauma can shape an acting career. Even... If you're, you know, a giant muscle man like Terry Crews. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Economic Development Authority of Fairfax County, Virginia. Here's President and CEO Jerry Gordon discussing international business in the county. Fairfax County now has more than 420 foreign-owned businesses located within its borders. It represents about 30,000 direct employment. They love being in Fairfax County because it's easy to get here through Washington Dulles International Airport, and it's a highly cosmopolitan community. More information at fairfaxcountyeda.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Terry Crews. He's one of the stars of Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox. Have you ever seen the movie Little Dieter Needs to Fly, the Werner Herzog documentary? I did. No, I didn't. Okay. It's a really amazing movie. I recommend it. It's been on my mind since I watched it on an airplane like six months ago. Okay. It's about this German-American pilot who flew in the Vietnam War and was shot down and became a prisoner of war. And that's Dieter, the little Dieter who needs to fly. And he went through a nightmarish prisoner of war scenario, more nightmarish than you could possibly imagine. Hmm. And he, in the film, which was made in the 90s, they, they shoot in his house in Marine County. And he's talking to Werner Herzog. And, you know, he's a beautiful house. And he's was a, he, he when he returned home, he was a hero. And 
you know, he's had a successful career and so on and so forth. But he lifts up the floorboards of his kitchen and shows that he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food underneath the floor of his house because he simply cannot go to sleep without knowing that he will have food. Wow. Because of this experience that he went Wow. I wonder if a part of your drive is something like that, that it is about distinguishing yourself and earning a living for your family um, because of the pain that you went through as a kid. I believe that wholeheartedly. And again, it goes back to cause and effect. I've never been more helpless than watching my dad with all his strength hit my mother in the face. And I'm I'm five. And you want a protector. You want to jump in. But what are you going to do? This is a grown man. And he's the, not only that, he's like the, ju- the, the example of all strength. He's basically God in your house. And you see your mother go down and you don't know what to do. I remember there was one when they were fighting one time, I remember started, I started to laugh. That, now, that's weird. And I felt guilty for laughing. But you didn't, I, it was all, you don't know why you do what you do. And I think it's it's really weird because, and again, as people, we tend to only deal with effects. We only talk about where you are now, but there's always a reason. There's always something really, really deep. There's abuse there. There's all this damage there. And it's, I truly believe there's three things that really make you who you are. One is heredity. The other's environment, and then, but the third and most important is a decision. And you can't do anything about the first two. But that decision, man, when I discovered that magical thing, like, okay, I was born here, but I don't have to live here. And the decision to not have these things affect me, the decision to forgive. I mean, I had to forgive my dad. I had to come up. I mean, now this. I'm, I'm being this being said. I also knocked him out. I mean, I had me and him had a come to Jesus meeting for real. He hit my mother one more time, but I was a grown man, and I beat his ass, and it did no good. When I tell you, I remember just sitting down and crying because I thought. That was going to make me feel better. I thought, there I am. Here I am. This is the moment. I can protect her. I can do this. And he was beat up. And I didn't feel not one bit better. But then years later, I literally met with him. And I remember saying, I have to get over this. I have to forgive this man. And the only thing, and the best thing I could think about, like, you know, you start thinking about ways to forgive and how are you going to do it. And I said, wait a minute, okay. What good thing did he do for me? I said, you know what? Without you, I would not exist. That's the good thing that you did for me. And I said, in fact, it's the truth is, if I had to choose my parents, I would choose you because I wouldn't be here. And he broke down, and we had the biggest hug. I mean, it was one. Of, it was a little like a ten minute hug. And let me tell you, that hug did more than anything. I, our relation, it did more for our relationship than any other thing that had ever occurred in my whole life. 
Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking all this time to uh, come be here. This is good. Uh, you know, this is part of my therapy, man. Just talking. It's weird because you look back and go, oh, wow, that's good. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm always grateful to get to see you. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. Terry Crews, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, currently in its fifth season, one of the funniest shows on TV. Probably, I'm going to go ahead and say the funniest show on network television. I really like that show. Go check it out. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's time for Cannonball. We talk to experts about classic albums or albums that should be considered classics, and we find out what makes them great. And listen, some kinds of music everybody agrees on. Nobody says that the Rolling Stones don't belong in the canon. But what about Genesis, or Yes, or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? Who will speak for the prog rockers? Prog rock had and has all the wrong markers for rock and roll authenticity. The music wasn't down and dirty. The songs weren't pop radio short. Sometimes they were downright long. Classically trained musicians, a lot of them came out of conservatory in England. And they used weird instruments for rock music synthesizers, flutes, horns. A lot of them loved jazz. They worshipped Charlie Parker and Bill Evans. But they also loved rock and roll. Rock and roll purists hated progressive rock. The prog rockers threw the blues out the window. They traded raw sexuality for instrumental virtuosity. Tricky time signatures, noodly solos. But prog has always had its loyalists. Mark Weingarten and Tyson Cornell are two of them. They're the editors of Yes is the Answer. It's a literary anthology devoted to the best of Prague. They say that one landmark album was a blueprint for the entire genre, In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. The album came out in the fall of 1969, but about half a million Londoners got their first taste of it that summer in Hyde Park when King Crimson landed a gig opening for the Rolling Stones. It's safe to say the audience will never forget them. Blowing everybody away with Schizoid Man. If you come out with Schizoid Man as your opening number, you're going to make an impression on people. It was the first face-melting track on In the Court of the Crimson King. It's just an onslaught. As a kicker to a record, it doesn't get much better than this. I mean, it's just remarkably heavy for that time. Exactly. I never understood what the hell he was talking about lyrically, but I didn't care. Blood rack, barbed wire, politician's funeral pyre. This ain't Stairway to Heaven, bro. This is something else entirely. This is when it gets really nuts. This is the very first time that Prague fans just geeked out on an incredibly complicated interlude. 
template for all prog music. Yes didn't even do this in the first two records where you just had this kind of like upshift suddenly on a dime. Love it. Can't imagine what it was like for those Stones fans to be sitting there listening to this as the opener for the Stones, you know? I mean, as a 15-year-old listening to this with your Sennheisers on in your bedroom, you're just freaking out. I just remember trying to figure out this Robert Fripp guitar part. This guitar part is so complicated. It's like bending notes with a wrench or something. Great drumming. God, listen to Giles drumming on this. I mean, this has, this has zero basis in blues-based music whatsoever. This is completely untethered from all of that tradition. That's why I do think of it as the real first prog rock record. It contains all the touchstones of that genre. Multiple parts within a single song. Movement. That kind of virtuosity. The dynamics. The soft into the loud. With Fripp being the X Factor because it's like from another planet. People look at, you know... Jimi Hendrix and uh, Page and uh, Page Clapton. I mean, people really pushing the limits. Those guys were all blues-based guys playing blues scales. Yeah, Fripp is playing his. I don't know what what you know his own scales. I don't know what he's playing. Robert Fripp. I mean, he's a guy that really took the advancements of musical technology. The early synthesizers, the sound techniques. Robert Fripp was the person that was uh, paving that road. He was experimenting with those things. He was also known for not caring what people thought about his art. He's a control freak, basically. But you're right, he is a singular musician. This song's called Moonchild, and it kicks off side two of the record. Now, this is a track that a lot of people tend to skip when they listen to the record they have the remotes at the ready because this is um a challenging track it starts out beautifully like this the way you're hearing right now this lovely melody this kind of like gliding melody almost like a folk rock tune and then it kind of evolves into this super abstract freeform improv for about 12 minutes also hear the influence of movies yeah that's the other thing about Prague. it feels like you're yeah you're entering a spatial world that has real dimension to it it's a little challenging at times Prague musicians ran into problems after this record they wanted to do 20 minute versions of tunes and they were getting difficult reactions from record companies with their royalty structures. If they only had five songs on a record, they were only getting paid for those five songs. So they devised a wonderful technique of breaking each song into movements, which allowed them to expand their royalty structure. This record, now when you you go look at it, they do kind of break things down into movements, but when it came out, it was really just a bunch of long songs. And I think the world of Prague learned, learned their lesson. Fripp would have gotten paid a lot more. Had they used Roman numerals. The full title of this song is The Court of the Crimson King, including the return of the Fire Witch and the Dance of the Puppets. 
little spinal tapian, I'm gonna say. But it's that that Mellotron. Love that Mellotron. This is my favorite track on the record. The rusted chains of prison moons are shattered by the sun. I walk a road, horizons change, the tournaments begun. And then you have Pete Sinfield, of course, the lyricist, who is writing these, the king, the king, queens, and knave. Yeah, and Sinfield is the component here that a lot of people don't realize as being very, very powerful because he wasn't on stage with the band. <laughs> the cracked brass bells were ring the, to summon back the fire witch to the court of the Crimson King. I think these lyrics are the instructions to Dungeons and Dragons. I believe that's what this is. That being said, I still love it. It's almost heavy metal in a way. Those big Mellotron block chords. No one had ever done that. It's powerful. It was just a totally fresh approach to rock and roll. The keeper of the city keys put shutters on the dreams. I wait outside the pilgrim's door with insufficient schemes. It just conjures up images in your mind's eye all the time, this music. You get what you want out of it. Everybody gets something different out of it. This is the gravity's rainbow of music. The reason why Court of the Crimson King is such an important record is that it was picked up by FM, Freeform Radio, in the States. It was really the first prog record that a lot of people heard. It's a legacy of exploration, of experimentation, of trying new things in rock and roll, expanding the palette of rock. And that's important for a lot of bands, even bands that are in prog rock. The metal crowd always looks back to King Crimson as, as being great. All of the Doom, Black Sabbath, I mean, that all pays a lot of homage to this record. General rock audiences caught into this record. It opened the floodgates. Genesis, Yes Broke Through, Gentle Giant. That's why it's an important prog record, because it became that kind of entry point for a lot of mainstream rock fans. It just said, this is a new approach. This is something else we can do. It doesn't have to be AABA. You know, it doesn't have to be 12-bar blues. It doesn't even have to be the moody blues. You know, it could be something else. I love this ending. Mark Weingarten and Tyson Cornell on what they consider to be the founding document of progressive rock. King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King. They're the editors of Yes is the Answer and other prog rock tales. It's now available in paperback. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guests, Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham. We talked in 2014. So male friendship is very well represented in comedy. I mean, really, 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 really well represented. But female friendship, not so much. And when we do see female friendships, the characters are sort of rote. You know, they, they always play the same three or four types. On their show, Playing House, Lennon Parham and Jessica St. Clair frame things differently. They've been working together for years as improvisers at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York and Los Angeles. On Playing House, their characters are less Carrie and Miranda and more Laverne and Shirley. You can actually imagine them being buddies. The show completed its third and final season 
earlier this year. Here's the premise. In Playing House, St. Clair's character Emma left her hometown to work in Shanghai. She comes home to her best friend Maggie's baby shower, that's Parham. They accidentally discover that Maggie's husband has been cheating on her online. It's pretty silly. It's not afraid of genuine feeling. And in this scene, Emma crams into a tiny backyard shed with Maggie. Maggie's been crying over the end of her marriage. Really bad for a while. Thanks. Why didn't you tell me? Come on, it's embarrassing. I mean, you're over there in Shanghai, hobnobbing with Asian high rollers, trading, I don't know, diamonds for briefcases of money. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know. That's what happened in Skyfall. Okay. My life is nothing like Skyfall, okay? Daniel Craig is not my boyfriend. I don't even have a boyfriend. I don't have any friends. <laughs> it's pretty depressing. Okay. I just wanted to make a right choice. I know, I know, but listen, you did. You made the right choice for then. All right, you were what, like 25? Yeah. You know, you lost both of your parents. It's You wanted someone safe. What am I going to do now? You know what? We're going to figure it out. But we don't have to figure it all out tonight. I spoke to Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham last year. Jessica Lennon, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> We're very excited because it's very formal. It feels in this very room, fancy. our voice sounds like an NPR voice, and it's very exciting. It's not the, the normal screech owl voice that comes out of my mouth in normal life. That's exciting. I read somewhere that on your last show, which was a network sitcom for NBC, what, what you did when you were writing it was break it down in terms of story beats, which is a normal thing that sitcom writers do, yeah. sure. and then basically go in a room with a tape recorder and... <laughs> improvise the scenes over and over and just write down the jokes that you like the most. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, you would have thought perhaps that process would have killed us uh, <laughs> in, in BFF, and it almost did, um, that we would change that, but we didn't. We did that again, but we perfected it, which is now what we do is we have a writer's room, and they actually come into that room that we're um, perf- improvising, improvising in. in. So we break it with a writer's room, and then all, you know, maybe the two writers or three writers that are sort of focused on that episode will come in and they'll watch us play all the parts. So it, it looks like two crazy people. Um, Lennon plays all the men mm. yeah, <laughs> because most of she them. can really get into a man's POV. Okay. That's inappropriate. <laughs> but, like, if you can imagine, like, during the romantic scenes, Lennon's playing the man with me. And then we have three guys in the writer's room who are just like, can, do we leave? Do we stay? No, they, you, you stay there and you watch it. You watch it. But it was the only way we could really capture the way that Jess and I finished each other's sentences and overlap each other or just like the way people really talk in life and – um, the weird things they say. We're, we're really yeah. When you're in a fight, with, yeah. when you're like in a in a in a crazy fight with someone, there are funny moments, there are, are heartfelt moments, but mostly you're saying insane things like, "Well, why don't you be a robot?" You know, yeah. like that kind of thing. Ian Roberts, who's one of the founders of the UCB, he always taught us in our classes that your your subconscious mind is where the actual funny lives. Your conscious mind is filled of all the things like like the uh, tropes, the Chevy Chase, like um. Jokes that have been like lodged in there since seventh grade. Yeah, the things you thought were funny when you were like 11. Yeah, and so in order to get into that subconscious mind, the only way Lennon and I can do it is to improvise. Do you yeah. remember meeting each other? Oh, yes. Uh, well, we saw each other across a crowded like room a, take, a couple times. Taking each other in. There were two things. I saw Jess perform mm-hmm. and she was screaming at 
someone on the ground. Mm-hmm. I remember that. <laughs> and then uh, was, on the, was I on the ground? No, there was another woman on the ground. Who would sure. that have been? Tara Copeland. Probably, okay. Yeah. And then, um, and then the second time I saw her, so then I knew about her because everybody was like Jessica. Oh, come on. Man. Oh, Jessica Sega, yeah, she's so funny. Um, and then she was like booking Wendy's commercials, which was like at the time like <laughs> listen, the as high as sell, you could soar. If you could sell a Wendy's salad on TV. Yeah. I mean, you had it made. You were yes. the queen. It's true. You take a bite of that chili and then <laughs> smile. It's true. You know what was amazing during the shooting of that commercial? I kept taking a bite and then doing what I thought was a mm-mm face, but it was really me shaking my head no. <laughs> and they were like, you have to stop doing that. <laughs> also, it's very racist because I, I karate chopped a Chinese chicken salad in one of the spots, oh, which I just geez. thought was really pushing the limits of what was acceptable. Even more with Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And we are here with a new show. The Indicator from Planet Money. On every show, we take some number in the news and we dive into it to find the big idea behind it. Get it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Lennon Parham and Jessica St. Clair. They created and starred in the USA series Playing House. We talked when the show debuted in 2014. Getting back to your <laughs> romance of Lennon here. Yes. You part of what you wanted was to was specifically to work with a woman? Well, I was desperate to write a story about female friendship and and that kind of close best friendship that's almost it is a romance, you know, it's like almost a romantic comedy but but starring two women. And because my my personal best friendships in life have been so important to me with with women. And so and I really felt like it wasn't being told on on TV or in movies. And it wasn't until like Bridesmaids honestly that I felt like, oh, okay, it's happening again. You know, the the golden days of like Lucy and Ethel and Kate and Allie and the Golden Girls. These are all shows that I was obsessed with, and I felt like it hadn't happened in a while. At any rate, I thought it would never happen. And then I saw Lennon, and she was wearing a sweater set, and so was I. And I thought, <laughs> I honestly was like, there must be something wrong with her, because why is she spending all of her time mm-hmm. underground? In this <laughs> in this theater below a Gristiti supermarket, I, a drippy supermarket. A dri- Listen, yeah. I don't know if you were there when the power went out, but <laughs> I'll tell you what: blood dripped on my head from the butchers above, yeah, and they, I had to they, excuse myself. They they were talking about like the stage. money that they had gotten <laughs> after an ASCAP performance was going to go to buying new bins to catch the dri- the drippings on, from man. the meat from the floor from the meat juice. And I didn't understand why my mother hated coming there. I was like, get with it and get hip. And she was like, there's a smell here that I can't get out of my clothes. But at any rate, I knew that that Lennon was a similar girl and that she was a nice girl that found her way into this weird labyrinth. And I thought maybe she'll have the same you know desire. And it turned out she didn't know she did but she did i think one of the interesting <laughs> things about the tone of your show playing house is that it is set in a sort of uh, small town any town usa it is very uh what they probably they may not still call but what usa once called blue sky e oh right you know it's yeah. very vibrant and and happy in mm-hmm. its context mm-hmm. And um, both of your characters are, um, you know, they're they're not, you know, they're not necessarily like super aspirational the way that the Sex and the City women were, right? 
or super blue collar. They're sort of like nice regular ladies. Yeah, ladies in sweater sets. <laughs> yeah, but also, but also there is an element of like, and but we are going to go weird sometimes. Just oh yeah, like, I yeah. mean, there's an episode where Lennon dresses as a man for half of it. And I don't – USA hasn't seen the cut yet. Yes, they saw it on Friday. We, we're getting notes today. When America sees it, I mean, it's outrageous. But basically what we wanted to do is create this kind of what we call, for lack of a better word, and we really need to come up with a better word for it. I'm we, we nervous it, about what she's going to say. We call it girl porn. Oh. Because yeah, girl porn is these beautiful houses with with a wrapping station and <laughs> and the makings for a chocolate chip cookie and, you know, out and, um, you know, the the, the – the perfect throw and this gorgeous little town and that that to me was like Gilmore Girls had that charm and I used to you know escape into that and so we always wanted to do something that had that kind of um, it's almost like a Nancy Myers like layered look but within that the secret weirdos that we are kind of populating it because right. Jess and I I don't think that we're alone in in knowing that most women, although they appear and they are wearing a sweater set and they have a face full of makeup underneath, they're like falling, falling apart. apart at the seams. And <laughs> and you know, you're always like just one step away from like having a raisin stuck to your ass all day. You right. know, like right. And, and you're like, and thank God you have a best friend, or because no tell one you, else would tell hey, you. Hey, guess what? You have a raisin. So, I mean. I, we're just kind of like showing that, like pulling the veneer back. And so we always look great, but we're always saying crazy things. Right. And we filled and, that town full of all of our best friends from the UCB. So it's like all it's kind of like the Gilmore Girls stars hollow, but filled with all these UCB weirdos. Yeah. So it's got a little something for everybody. <laughs> so I want to play one more clip from Playing House. And my guests are the stars and creators of the show, Jessica St. Clair and Lennon, Lennon Parham. Um, and in this scene, uh, their characters, Maggie and Emma, are in a hardware store. <laughs> and there's just sort of browsing in the aisles, um, complaining about how they don't know anything about hardware. And um, they spot in an adjacent aisle Emma's ex-boyfriend, Mark, who's played by Keegan-Michael Key, and um, his now wife. Hi, Maggie. Hey. Hi, Emma. It's nice to see you. Mark said that you're back in town. Yep, back home. You know, just helping Fatty here plop out a baby. That's me. <laughs> oh, but good. look at you. You look like you just walked out of a Hollywood salon. Oh, it's just gorgeous. Not the two of us. You look like a couple of sister wives. Just, you know, is it his turn or my turn? Or okay. We're all taking a turn. So, anywho, uh, maybe we should go. Yeah, but you know what? We should all hang out sometime. Oh, I don't I don't think we necessarily have to do that. No, we it's definitely out. should. In fact, I am not leaving until we make firm plans. Well, how about tomorrow? Um, tomorrow? That's, wow, Maggie, what do you have on the docket? Um, you know what? That is a nice invitation. Yeah. But... Oh, then we can do brunch. You know what? As much as I would love to have you in my home where I live, uh, I have to work tomorrow. Oh. oh. So it's well, great. not good then for me. Then it's just us girls. are are there things about um uh lady friendship that as a dude i wouldn't know uh that you feel like you wanted to represent on tv that you think are funny 
we didn't I don't think we think that from that angle, like what do guys need to know about us girls? We just are trying to authentically represent what real girls are like in friendships and I and to, put to it, be fair, I, yeah. I, I I meant only to speak humbly that it might be something that I don't know about. Not, <laughs> right, not to right. say that it's your job to teach no, me. No, no, no. But, no. In, but, but when we did a we did a table read uh that was with, filled with our like closest guy friends all comedians and and nick kroll said what did he say jay he, he said um i i fe- is this what after we finished the reading he goes is this really what girls are like when we're not around and i said yeah and he goes god i feel like jane goodall you know watching <laughs> the gorillas like because because it does change we do change again yeah. we act a lot more normal around you guys um, we keep a lot of that crazy locked inside. <laughs> but then when we're alone, I mean, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. I, I think we just wanted to show, like, uh, that women just don't really have it together. <laughs> we watched Sex in the City, and we definitely connected to the emotional stuff and the friendship part. But the part where you're They're wearing a like tutu a and, dress. like, you know, that, that fantasy. The Manolas all over town. Yeah, you're not going to find that in Playing House. No, no. <laughs> You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham. So you go to Tina's house, and it is an exceptionally, you know, it sort of looks like a design magazine yes, house. Yes, yes. Um, and it is kind of lifestyle porn. Yes. But what you, but what you learn is that she has the secret closet. The hoarder closet. Filled with all the things she's gotten from QVC from like 1996 to the present day. microwave omelet makers yep. and panini presses yep. and, and loofahs, etc. And somebody like Bird Bones, she's the she is the perfect woman. She looks perfect, you know. She has this beautiful Not a house. Out of place. When we go to the brunch, there's like a million, you know, like croissants weird and, and fruit weird pastries. And and we feel like these maniacs. And at one point, we say to her, like, "Where do you keep all your junk? Like, where's your junk drawer?" And she opens it up, and it's got one of these. It's like it's this like container an acrylic, store. Yeah, yeah. So for when we find her hoarder's closet, she's so embarrassed. And but we are relieved. We say this. We are like, oh, okay, so you are a real person with a hoarder's closet. You just keep it all in one insane place. Whereas we, it's coming out of, you know, it's coming out of, yeah. I think the main thing about female friendship is you cannot be truly close unless you confess your weirdness to each other. And there are certain girls who don't have girlfriends, and and we're afraid of those women usually because (laughs) they don't feel the need to say like, oh my God, I just found a random thong in my purse, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's mine. You know what I mean? And like, but that's what bonds us. Women like to say, I'm a mess, so am I. There's an Amy Schumer sketch that perfectly articulates this, although to an extreme. But it made me so, laugh so hard. It's a group of women who come up and compliment each other on what they're wearing. And then the other woman has to say, no, I look like a piece of crap. Yeah. And and that heightens. And then the very last woman comes up and says, they are like, oh, we love your red trench. And she's like, thanks. And then they all start killing themselves. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because that Because it's like an unspoken thing in the female world, like... I, I'm falling apart. This is how I'm falling apart. And you say, yes, me too, me too. Because you always – you, you want to be in the same place with your girlfriends and, and you want to be sharing the same, like, fears. Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham. If you haven't seen their show Playing House, it's such a wonderful show. You can stream it on Amazon. You can find it on iTunes, among other places. Lately, Lennon has had a recurring role on Lady Dynamite – 
Maria Bamford's show. She is super funny on that. Jessica has more recently been on HBO's Animals, on Bob's Burgers, on Fox, and in Comedy Central's Review with Andy Daly. Every week we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me or host. It is the outshot. Not a lot of R&B bands made it through disco and came out the other side. There's some of those sort of one-man band situations did, like Rick James and Stevie Wonder. A few vocal groups like The Whispers. A couple of funk bands, Lakeside, Cameo. But a lot of bands bit the dust either when disco hit or when they couldn't find their way out of it. One of the biggest urban acts of the 80s came out of the smoldering rubble of the 70s. From Oklahoma, via L.A., named for Greenwood, Archer, and Pine Streets in their hometown, Tulsa, three brothers named Wilson, Charlie, Ronnie, and Robert, the Gap Band. They were a 12-piece originally. Laid down a couple of go-nowhere funk records in the 70s. No charting singles. But then they found their way to a nightclub owner and producer in L.A. named Lonnie Simmons. Simmons signed them to his label, Total Experience Records. He named it after his club on Crenshaw in L.A. First thing, Simmons dropped nine guys from the band. Everyone except the Wilson brothers. He cleaned up their sound a little bit. And then the four of them got to work making hits. The Gap Band's first record with the new label was called The Gap Band. That was also the name of their last album for the old label, but it didn't matter. This was a new start. They had four top ten R&B hits in the first three albums on Total Experience, but it was the next album that was their masterpiece. Gap Band 4 is a shiny diamond. It's as buffed up as anything on the R&B airwaves in 1982. But it's also deeply funky. If Parliament Funkadelic were mostly fueled by weed and psychedelics, this new, shiny 80s funk was undoubtedly cocaine music. Fierce and lush. Light and bouncy on the high end, deep and heavy on the low. Songs like You Dropped a Bomb on Me and Early in the Morning are driven by truly nasty bass work. Robert Wilson's bass guitar and Charlie Wilson's keyboards double-teaming under the melody. It's like a tractor beam of funk. But they also had something else, a secret weapon, Charlie Wilson's voice. It had that light, athletic quality that R&B radio wanted, but it had the richness of a soul singer, too. Charlie Wilson could take his band from a Parliament-style funk track, like Talkin' Back, (laughs) 
to a straight-up light FM jam like Stay With Me. Stay with me. To the gorgeous, plain and simple ballad, Seasons No Reason to Change. Girl, I love you more and more each day. And each and every day I pray that you will stay. Oh, seasons, seasons, no reason to change. The record is wall-to-wall bangers. Literally every song on Gap Band 4 hit the radio. Every single one. I, I want to be clear. It's a very record industry-ish album. A&R to within an inch of its life. Every song laser targeted at an audience segment or an open slot in a DJ's playlist. But it works because the Gap Band could actually do it all. A great band, a great singer, great songs, and a sound that felt light and funky at the same time. It's like a magic trick. The band had hits, great hits, after Gap Band 4. They never got back to that height. In fact, it got so bad that in the 90s, Charlie spent a few years homeless, literally living under a bridge, playing piano once in a while in a thrift store, smoking crack. There's good news, though. He's been clean for quite a while now. He's become a kind of elder statesman in hip-hop. The Gap Band still tours, and Charlie's recorded with Snoop Dogg and Kanye West, who call him Uncle Charlie. It's a beautiful resurgence for a great band. But as wonderful as that is, they'll never top 1982, the year they perfected that magical mix of light and funky, the year they dropped that megaton bomb. That's my out shot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We've got some bird news here from the park, according to my producer Kevin, who's a real bird dork, migrating widgeons, which apparently is a real type of bird, and cormorants return to the lake. They both kind of look like ducks or geese. I'm a little bit concerned that Kevin put widgeons in my script to embarrass me, and it's not a real kind of bird. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien, neither of whom know if widgeons are real or not. Production fellow for MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. I don't know how he feels about birds. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. She definitely doesn't care. All our interstitial music is provided to us by the great Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free at our website, 
go to MaximumFun.org. You can also check out Bullseye on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. There you will find all of our interviews in shareable, streamable form, along with uh, handsome pictures, so you can really get your mind's eye going about what those guests look like. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 